Welcome to the first of two episodes on Iran. In this episode, we'd like to shed light on the real, as opposed to the propaganda, drivers of Iran's regional policy. Is this so-called Iranian threat real or imagined? Historically, Iran has not been an aggressive nation. So what are the basis of this allegation, often made by the Saudis and their allies in the Gulf and elsewhere in the Arab world? Is the Islamic Republic motivated by a desire to promote the Shia strand of Islam? Or are the real drivers of Iranian foreign policy a mixture of Iranian nationalism and religion? What are the basis of Tehran's relations with Lebanese Hezbollah and the Yemeni Houthis? Is Iran's intervention in Syria to do with Israel, the fear of instability, or kinship with the Alawites? who belong to an offshoot of the Shia strand of Islam, to which the ruling Assad family and key members of the Syrian regime belong. And how does Iran view Sunni Muslim movements, such as the Muslim Brotherhood? With me to discuss these issues is Dr. Farhang Jahanpur, an Iranian academic and journalist living in the UK. First, Dr. Jahanpur, tell us something about your background. When did you leave Iran and why? Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to speak about this very important issue. Uh, I was born in Shiraz, a beautiful city uh, near Persepolis, the ancient capital of the Achaemenids. It's a city of saints and poets, a home of 12 of the greatest Iranian poets, Hafez and Sadi. Uh, I did my education in Shiraz and received my BA in English and Persian literature. And as I received the highest grades, uh, I was given a scholarship to come to Britain. So I came to Britain in 1960 and went to Leeds University and got an honors degree in English literature in two years. Then I went to Hull and did an MA in American studies and then went to Cambridge and did a PhD in Oriental studies. I also taught Persian language and literature at Cambridge for five years. Uh, the series of questions that you have asked and you have mentioned are long and really requires a very long discussion. But I'll try to say it as a kind of headlines of some of the major points. That's all right. Take your time. Uh... Thank you. Well, as you mentioned, Iran traditionally has not been an aggressive state. In fact, the last time that Iran attacked a foreign country, and even then it was not regarded to be a foreign country, was in 1837 when Iran sent forces to recapture Herat. Herat, which is now in Afghanistan, was part of Iran for a very, very long time. But the British wanted to create a buffer between Russia and between India, so they began to encroach both on Iran and Afghanistan, and part of the Afghanistan, which they separated from Iran, was Herat and Mazar-i Sharif. And in 1837, Iran sent forces uh, to recapture it, but of course the British were stronger and it did not achieve anything. That's the very last time that Iran has sent forces abroad. Now, to get an idea of whether Iran is an aggressive state in the modern world or not, um, I'd like to mention just a few, as I said, headline points. Before the revolution, Iran was a major country in the Middle East. In fact, even from the 60s and so much more in the 70s, Iran's GDP was bigger than that of Turkey or Pakistan. Uh, 
Now, with the increase in the price of oil in the early 1970s, Iran's revenue increased about four times, and it became a very, very rich country. Um, so before the revolution, it had a status in the region, had very good relations with all the Arab states. In fact, uh, it helped with Zofar rebellion in, in uh, uh, Oman and helped King Qaboos to defeat that movement. Um, it was the first country or one of the first countries for Washington when he decided to give the so-called atoms for peace. In 1950s, 1952, Iran received its first reactor. And the Shah had very ambitious programs for developing nuclear energy, but also maybe at the back of his mind, there was also the idea of developing, if not nuclear weapons, but is coming to the threshold. Because once both India and Pakistan began to develop nuclear weapons, and then later, of course, Israel, Iran thought, because he regarded Iran as a major country in the region, that it should not be left out of this process, and so wanted to develop Iran's nuclear program. But before the revolution, it was a buffer, if you like. It became a major ally of America. Uh, in 1972, when Nixon and Kissinger visited Iran, Iran signed, believe it or not, a 44 billion dollar. In those days, it was a huge amount. Yes, absolutely. About a trillion dollar now. Yeah. Iran spent during the early 70s more than 15 billion on U.S. weapons, which is at least 150 billion now. So, in fact, the amount of money that Iran spent on weapons and deals with America uh, makes MBS's uh, 100 billion deal with America or a few dozen uh, billions, which of course he did not spend the whole 100 billion, uh, looks rather puny in comparison. Uh, America and their Nixon during the so-called Nixon doctrine uh, decided to not have direct involvement in the Middle East, but to have a number of key countries to act as regional strongmen. And the Shah, of course, was one of those countries which was chosen America gave, as I said, huge amount of uh, weapons, very advanced weapons, including AWACS, which even NATO did not possess at that time. Um, and Iran became what is called the gendarme of the region. Mm -hmm. In fact, in one of the last meetings the Shah had with King Khalid, he told King Khalid that we are producing, securing the safety of the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean, and you have to help us uh, pay for these expenses. And apparently King Khalid had agreed that, yes, jointly they should try to work towards the security of the Persian Gulf. So Iran was a very important regional ally of America. And uh, as I said, it created a buffer between the Soviet Union and coming down to the warm waters of the Persian Gulf and Indian Ocean, and the Americans were very much trying to stop them from gaining access uh, to the fossil fuels in Iran and in the Persian Gulf. And so Iran, before the revolution, became a major international player, certainly a major regional player, and as I said, the sort of gendarme of the region, of the Persian Gulf and even the Indian Ocean. But with the revolution, everything changed. Um, I'm not a friend of the revolution. 
I think it certainly has gone the wrong way. I was in Iran during the revolution and I saw those huge, massive demonstrations. I think Iran did not need a revolution. It needed change. It needed democratization, but it could have been achieved through evolution rather than a massive revolution. But something which the Americans do not want to admit is that it was a massive, massive popular revolution, the forerunner of the Arab Springs much later, but with huge numbers. As I said, I was in Tehran, in Shiraz, in Isfahan. Honestly, during the marches, as far as you could see, hundreds of thousands of people took part in these marches. Shah's generals were saying that we should try to suppress it, but the Shah wisely said no, because he knew there would be a bloodbath. You cannot kill a million people in the streets of Tehran. Mm -hmm. And so he, he decided to leave and the revolution triumphed under Ayatollah Khomeini. As I said, of course, it was a mistake because it really set back Iran's progress for a few decades up to the present time. But also it has created an antagonism between the revolution regime in Iran and the West, particularly America. And I give you the reasons for this antagonism. The first one, of course, is the hostage crisis. Because after the revolution triumphed, the students and the revolutionaries were very hot-headed. Uh, America, after the 1953 coup, had dominated Iranian politics. As I said, Iran paid tens of billions of dollars to America for buying weapons and so on. And it angered many more democratic-minded, liberal-minded, and definitely leftist and pro-communist forces in Iran. So the revolution took place. Americans think that they owed Iran, and they think that they lost it. In fact, at the beginning of the revolution for the first two, three years, there was a major debate in Iran who lost Iran. The Republicans blamed President Carter that his weakness lost Iran. The Democrats said, in fact, it was the unbridled relationship. The Democrats believed it was the extensive and ex uh, excessive uh, sort of close relationship between the Nixon administration and Iran and selling tens of billions of dollars, which alienated the people, that really was the cause of the revolution. But in any case, Americans believe they have lost Iran and they want to take it back and they have not given up. Even now, they are trying, if they can, uh, to bring about a regime change, uh, to bring Iran again under, under American uh, control. So the first thing in this relationship since the revolution we changed the course from a very pro-American, pro-Western regime to a very hostile, anti-American. And the reason for it was they were fighting against the Shah and they saw America as its biggest backer, which has thousands of military advisors in Iran. And therefore, it also turned and became an anti-American revolution. But the hostage crisis, when the students attacked the American embassy and took American 52 American uh, diplomats hostage and kept them for 444 days, it has become something which even right up to now makes Americans extremely angry. But of course, they don't think that for 25 years prior to that, America was in charge of Iran and Iranian revolutionaries and left-wing forces and liberals were very much against what they had created with the SAVAK, the secret police, 
very strict dictatorship, lack of freedom, lack of democracy. And so they forget about that, but they just see the terrible act of the hostage crisis. The second important development was, of course, under the Shah, Iran had very close relations with Israel, and there was even an Israeli embassy in Iran. The revolutionaries completely reversed that. Yasser Arafat was the first foreign leader to visit Iran, and the revolutionaries, Ayatollah Khomeini, gave the former Israeli embassy to Israel, to, to, to Yasser Arafat and the PLO. Yeah, yeah. And of course, right to the present time, it has created the great hostility of both Israel and the United States. Uh, the third factor, I think, was Ayatollah Khomeini's revolutionary rhetoric, uh, which to some extent has continued up to the present time, when he talked about the export of the revolution. He, of course, did not mean that Iran would attack other countries and create revolutions, but he was saying that by its example of rising up against the superpower in the name of Islam and forming a government, Iran could export this revolution to other third world countries especially in the region. And of course, this is something which goes completely against uh, the American idea of the role in the Middle East. The fourth one which you referred to was the creation of Hezbollah. And of course, you know this very well, because under Ariel Sharon, when they attacked Lebanon, they killed many, many thousands. Some figure, uh, sources put the figure at between 20 and 30,000. They began to bomb Beirut and Sidon and for days on end uh, and destroyed the south of Lebanon. And then, of course, after that, there was the Sabra Shatila massacre where they killed quite a few thousand innocent uh, refugees, uh, Palestinian refugees. Um, but the groups of the people who suffered most, because in the south of Lebanon, it was mainly Shis who were, uh, again, if you like, in the front line yeah, facing yeah. Israelis. Iranians helped the Shi'is to organize themselves uh, to confront Israel. And of course, they help, helped create Hezbollah, which by now is an independent organization. It has got representations in the parliament. It acts independently. It has got its own forces. But clearly, it has got uh, some, it is inclined to some extent towards Iran. And this, of course, neither Israel nor America can tolerate. They call them terrorists and so on. But in fact, it was the Hezbollah which in the year 2000 kicked the Israelis out of Lebanon and liberated the South and have remained there ever since. Um, the fifth one, which is a very important event, both in Iran and the region, of course, uh, was the Iran-Iraq war. Now, depending on which side you want to believe, many Iranians believe that Saddam Hussein went to Saudi Arabia and to Jordan and to King Hussein right on the eve of the revolution and met members of the American government who encouraged him to attack Iran. I have got a documentary where an American uh, commentator says, who was involved, he said, yes, we encouraged him. He said he was very scared, was frightened. He said, I can't fight Iran. And he says, we filled his head with lots of nonsense saying, no, no, we are behind you. Go ahead and we are behind you. So in any case, whether he actually was encouraged to attack Iran or whether after the attack they helped him, there is no question about it that both the regional countries and uh, especially America and the West provided him with all sorts of weapons. 
Iran was totally isolated. Iran was facing French exclusive missiles, uh, British chieftain tanks, uh, Russian MiGs, and of course, all sorts of weapons from America, including chemical weapons, which was the first time these wretched weapons of mass destruction were used since the First World War. They killed over 100 or killed and wounded over 100,000 Iranians. There are still some people who are in hospital because of this chemical attack. Now, Iran sees this as an extremely hostile act, not only by America, but by, in fact, the entire Persian Gulf states. In fact, the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, was formed after the revolution in order to confront Iran. Um, Reuters quoted King Fat saying that he had given Saddam $27 billion, and altogether Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, UAE, and others gave Saddam some $80 billion. Imagine what $80 billion in the 80s would be worse now. Yeah, yeah. So it was a war waged by America and the West against Iran with the full support of the Gulf states, who provided shelter for Saddam Hussein, who gave him places from where he could launch his attacks, and so on. So why does Iran feel so aggrieved? I think this is very, very important, really, not to always see things from our point of view, but seeing it from their point of view, at least to become aware of the causes of the conflict, which has continued right, right to the present time. So number one is that Iran felt it was alone with the whole world against it, particularly the West and Persian Gulf Arab states. Second one, as I mentioned, was the use of Iraqi chemical weapons, not only supplied by the West, but right till the end of the war, none of the Western countries condemned it. The very first condemnation of the use of chemical weapons was right at the end of the war when it was over and then they began to sp speak about Halabja and so on when they were turning against Saddam Hussein. So during the eight years when at least six years when chemical weapons were used, there was not a murmur from any of the Western mm -hmm. countries. Iranians came to believe, and I think this is the fourth point, that Persian Gulf neighbors, the Arab regimes, were intent on helping the West to bring about a regime change in Iran. I don't have time to go to it. There were a number of attempted coups yeah, yeah. against the Mullahs, which failed. But anyway, there were coups supported by the West. Because of this situation, as Iran was totally isolated and the countries in the region had turned against Iran, Iran was forced to turn to organize or get the support of non-state entities, rather like Hezbollah, mm -hmm. the Houthis in, yeah. in uh, Yemen. Iran did not create the Houthis. Iran did not start the war. There was, again, another mass uprising part of the Arab Spring in, in uh, Yemen, and they toppled the regime, which was pro-West, pro-Saudi, mm -hmm. and they took over. Now, once the Saudi Arabia launched a major military attack, so far, according to the UN figures, nearly 340,000 Yemenis have been killed in this war. 
UN calls it the greatest humanitarian crisis at present anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. Iran supported the Houthis uh, to defend themselves. The same it did with the mobilization forces in Iraq, not because it wanted to dominate any of these countries, but because as a country which had been damaged and attacked by Saddam Hussein and suffered a great deal, wanted to make sure that this will not be repeated again. As a result, it began to help, in fact, not only Shia movements, for, for a while it even uh, helped their Sunni groups against the United States, because it wanted to have a foothold in Iraq to make sure that the events of the eight-year war will not be repeated again. After all these years of estrangement, in 2015 under President Obama, after many years of negotiation, because the issue of the Iran nuclear uh, program, which is a whole big story, if you want, we can talk about it later. But they said that Iran wants to make weapons. There was really no indications of that. Even the NIE, the joint report of 14 American intelligence organizations said that before 2003, there was some experimentation, but it was stopped by Iran under Khatami, President Khatami, and Iran simply has a civilian nuclear program. Again, the Israelis recently have started talking about they have found places, which is nonsense. And all that again goes back to pre-2003. So Iran really has been uh, isolated by all these countries and attacked from every direction for right reasons, for wrong reasons. Iran's human rights record is very bad, but it certainly is not the only country in the region with that. Iran tried several times, first under Hashemir Afsanjali, then under President Khatami, to extend the hand of friendship to America, started his dialogue of, the, uh, of civilizations and so on. It was rebuffed by America. In fact, they imposed further sanctions on Iran, Iran-Libya sanctions, the dual containment of Iran and Iraq and so on. So there was no response until eventually, after nearly four years of talks under President Obama in 2015, Iran and the international community, not only United States, reached a new agreement known as the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And it was endorsed by the Security Council resolution, which lifted all the previous sanctions which had been imposed on Iran and allowed Iran to trade freely. Sadly, even under President Obama, the Treasury and some right-wing elements in America prevented Iran from having the full benefit of the agreement. Of course, two years later, under Trump, as we know, uh, 2018, he completely violated the deal. And not only that, he reinstated much worse extraterritorial sanctions on Iran, which continue to the present time. Iranian banks are and, you know, under restriction. Iranian personalities, even foreign minister, president, Khamenei, the leader of Iran, and so on. So unprecedented uh, sanctions imposed on Iran. If you really count the hostile actions of the United States, Israel, and the Arab countries towards Iran since the beginning of revolution. Some people have worked on this. It has cost Iran, believe it or not, not billions, trillions, because Iran was, was prevented from selling her oil under the Shah. It was exporting some six million a day. Just imagine six million a day of oil for the past uh, 40 years. 
um, it came to a trickle under, mm -hmm. under Trump. Even now, it is probably less than a million. And so the entire infrastructure, the economy, the military, uh, the whole uh, system of Iran uh, was uh, damaged. Iran was hoping that after Trump, because Mr. Biden in his presidential election campaign had been saying that he will return to the JCPOA and criticize Trump for having withdrawn from it. As sadly now, we know over a year he has been in, in power, still he has brought in new issues. Uh, he's continuing mm. with the same uh, sanctions of Trump and is making new excuses. He wants a bigger deal, he wants a tougher deal. He wants Iranian revolution guards to be regarded as a Revolution Guards is part of Iranian armed forces. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Accent come. Mm. To say that a part of an Iranian or the country's armed forces is a terrorist entity goes against all logic of international behavior. But Iran has said that it will not accept this. Recently, it has again, for over a year, it abided by the deals which according to the IAEA, it had completely followed before the withdrawal by Trump. Uh, but then because there was no movement from the West, Iran has begun to again increase its uh, centrifuges and enrichment up to about 60%, which is still within the IAEA uh, permission. As a result of all this, to sum up, is that Iran has lost hope in the West and has so-called pivot to the East. It has turned to Russia and China, which really was forced to do this by Western policies and has signed 20-year strategic agreements with China for massive $400 billion of investment and of military cooperation with Russia for 20 years. So this is really the very quickly uh, summary of what has happened since the revolution and how the Iranians see the situation. So basically, it's a reaction to to history, a reaction to what has happened in the past in, uh, in terms of the relationship between Iran and the United States, and also a reaction to how the U.S. and its allies have, have, have responded to changes within Iran. Uh, and this is, it seems to me like a vicious circle so I don't know how you see this going. I mean, what's happening well, now? It is counterproductive and completely stupid dispute, really, because relations between countries should be separated from relations between individuals. There are many regimes we don't like, but we deal with them. And I think America is a global power. Iran is a regional power, at least one of the regional powers along Turkey, Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia is one of the leading, maybe four leading powers in the, in the Middle East. Um, both of them can cooperate uh, to create more peace and stability. Uh, I have seen some welcome moves by some regional countries, including Saudi Arabia. There have been talks with Iran and there was even talk of uh, reopening of their embassies in their, each other's capitals. I think this is a very wise move because the regional countries should not wait for Western superpowers uh, to come and solve their affairs. There should be an agreement between these countries 
not a kind of military agreement which America is trying to impose with Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and GCC countries in a new kind of Arab NATO. This is a recipe for continued war and disaster. What they should really do is to move towards a regional security pact uh, so that all of them know that they can cooperate, they can work together. And I think in the long term, unless you really want to move the world, push the world towards a catastrophic war, which will not be just limited to an attack on Iran, a war with Iran, as we saw with Iraq, it's going to last for a very long time, going to be very, very costly. After 20 years in Afghanistan, they were kicked out by people on motorbikes. Yes, exactly. Iran exactly. has a population of 85 million. People are very nationalistic. They may be very much against the current regime, but if they are attacked from outside, I can assure you, they will come together and will fight to the last person. So it's a very stupid policy, both for Israel and for America, to try to continue uh, and, and uh, you know, enlarge uh, or lengthen this dispute. And the best policy would be, first of all, for the regional countries. There are many countries like Iraq and Oman who are trying to mediate between Saudi Arabia and Iran, I think they should really come together, not only leave their hostility behind, but they should form a, a, a sort of proper union, a kind of security pact, so that they work together. The Persian Gulf belongs, neither Iran can get rid of Saudi Arabia, nor Saudi Arabia can get rid of Iran. They are neighbors. Mm -hmm. They have lived together for thousands of years, and they will be living together for, th living together for thousands of years. So the best thing for them is, to come together, reach some sort of agreement for cooperation, hopefully, in my view, also include Turkey and Egypt. Not in, as I say, a military pact, but in a security pact, non-aggression pact, mm. economic pact. There was a, a regional cooperation agreement, uh, which was between Pakistan, Iran, and then later on, uh, Iraq, Turkey, and Central Asian countries. I think if the GCC countries join it, it will make a block of nearly 450, 500 million people with huge GDP, because Iran is very rich. It has probably the first, definitely the second largest gas deposits in the world. BP puts Iran's gas deposits bigger than Russia's, but most others put it second to Russia. Iran, after Saudi Arabia, has the biggest deposits of oil in the region, third or fourth biggest in the world after Venezuela and Canada and Saudi Arabia. So together, they are extremely rich. They are diverse. They have lived together for thousands of years. They normally share a common faith. And therefore, I think the only solution would be to turn a page and instead of this sorry legacy of the past 40 odd years since the Iranian revolution, for all of them to come together and cooperate for the common good. And we'll see the Middle East become a very flourishing, prosperous part of the world. We can only hope. Uh, just one last thing you mentioned at the outset about the uh, human rights record of Iran, which, as you rightly point out, is not unique. The whole region has an appalling human rights uh, record. But from where I see it, it's very difficult to see that changing while all this external hostility continues because 
the perceived and the real hostility strengthens the hardliners and those who perhaps put issues like human rights in second place. Uh, do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think the two go together. When you are threatened from abroad, you tend to become even more harsh towards your own people. But if you feel less attacked from outside and more secure, you normally tend to ease up. One thing, again, I must say about Iran is, of course, its democracy is not perfect. But we call Turkey a democracy, we call Israel a democracy, despite its apartheid policies. We call many of these countries which have elections, Pakistan. None of them, as you say, is perfect. But one thing about Iran, which most Persian Gulf countries do not have, is that it has regular elections. Yes, unlike Saudi Arabia. change. And the funny thing is that if you really look at the past 42 years, every regime which has been in power, once the election has come, the opposite of it, the opposition, has come to power. Which means the election means something. There was a difference between uh, President Khatami and Mr. Ahmadinejad. There was a difference between President Rouhani and the current president, Mr. Raisi. So elections mean something and they matter. But of course, they are not perfect. And I think what they should do, and this is in the interest of Iran and all the other Persian Gulf countries or Middle East countries, really their greatest strength would lie in more democracy. Yeah, yeah. If they want to strengthen themselves, if they want to become stable, they must bring democracy. A person who li lives by the sword will die by the sword. Yeah. We have seen that Western democracies, despite great opposition, are stable because people believe that the government is their product. They have brought it to power. They can topple it. And I really think that if the Middle Eastern countries learn this, there is no reason why people should rise up against Qatar or UAE or uh, people like their regimes, people like their countries. If they feel free, if they feel that they are not under oppression, if they feel that the government is responsive to them, if there is an element of freedom and democracy, I think the regimes will feel much more secure and much stronger than they are at the moment. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you and it's been an extremely insightful analysis of what's going on. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon again about another aspect of uh, Iranian and Middle Eastern policy. Thank you very, Thank you much, very much, Dr. Janpour. Thank you, Mr. Eldofani. Thank you. Bye. Bye. -bye.